What's up, family? It has been a crazy week for me. I don't know if it's been a crazy week for you, but I'm just glad that we are back together right here on the podcast. Welcome to With The Facts Podcast. If you're new around here, our only rule here on the podcast is that when you come to the podcast, that you come with the facts. And so I bring guests on, we talk about various topics, anything from politics to religion to sex to race everything we don't leave anything off the table and so this episode is going to be no different i am so excited for y'all to some of you all to introduce him to you or reintroduce him to you uh, my friend christian smith who has been on the podcast before um, but he's coming back this time y'all as an author and so he is the author of breaking all the rules an ancient framework for modern faith when I tell you this conversation is everything, it is everything. But let me say this. Some of you all are in different areas of your faith journey. Some of you all may not even believe in um, God or Christianity at all. But what I will say is I think that wherever you land, you can appreciate this conversation. It's going to challenge you. It's going to encourage you. It's going to motivate you. Um, and the thing that I really hope that it does for you is that it causes you to do some deep diving into what you believe and why you believe it. So I'm not going to, I'm going to shut up now. I, I'm, I'm going to just toss it on over to the interview. So y'all sit back, relax, and come on, let's dive into today's episode. All right. So we are here. My friend Christian is here and he's a whole author, which is Wow, just I went from hearing about the book to oh, I finished the book. It's off of the editors. Like so, all of this has happened like really quickly, and it's yeah. dope. I'm so excited to have you back on the podcast because last time you were here, you were talking about being an entrepreneur, and now you've added another slash. You added that author to your name. So, welcome back to the podcast. I just oh, out here doing it, big things. I don't. It's a it's a privilege to be here with my good friend Marielle. Like, you know, we just kicking it, you know. This is this is how we do. This is exactly what we do. Um, it has been a while since you've been on the podcast. So for we got several new listeners. Um, so I think it'd be really awesome if you can kind of just introduce yourself. Like, so who is Christian? Sure. Um, my name is Christian A. Smith. I'm a spiritual image developer. And that just encompasses all the things that I do uh, because it would take too long to run down a list of the things that I do professionally. So spiritual image developer encompasses all of those uh, basically means that I help people develop their internal image and their external image. So on the external image part, you know, that's what we talked about the last time I was on the show. I have a custom clothing company. It's called P Squared Custom Clothiers. So we do custom clothes, wardrobe, consulting, styling, um, all of the above for men and women. On the internal image development, that's where that's what brings us here today. Uh, so I'm a pastor, a spiritual director author of this latest book, which brings us here today. So I'm proud pastor of the faith community where Marielle is actually our amazing worship leader. Uh, I don't if know about y'all, the part, but, I, so, but I, I'm there. 
for your <laughs> listeners, in case y'all don't know, Mariel sings like for real, for real sings. If you've never heard her sing, you need to find out about her because the girl can go. Um, so yeah, I pastor the faith community. Um, I am the uh, the host and the heretic on the Holy Smoke Cigars and Spirituality podcast and that entire movement. And then, you know, most recently, the author of Breaking All the Rules. Yeah. So I'm glad to be here. Yes. So for those who are, and I hope y'all can see this, this is the new book. And of course, Christian has it behind him. I am really excited. It's a good read. It's an easy read. And so we're going to kind of dive into the book. Um, Christian, take me, before we even get to the book, what even... What happened that you were like, you know what, what happened on your faith journey that led you to this moment of, you know what, I need to write this book. So like, where did this all start? Even just the idea. Yeah, the, it's, it really starts in my childhood with being groomed to think critically. And I write about that in the book. Most of what I say today will probably be somewhere in the book. So my dad was on me about critical thought. Uh, you know, I had to argue cases when I wanted to do something. My dad would be like, all right, state your case. So I had to come up with a logical rationale for why I should have my request granted. And that was just developed in me. The challenge there is that I wasn't pushed to think critically about my faith and my theology. I was more groomed to accept it. And when I started preaching, I did a really good job of regurgitating the things that I heard. I found creative ways to say the stuff that had always been said. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of preachers do. Like, we don't really think critically about about new things that God might be saying. We just find new ways to say what we've always heard said. So what really put it over the top was when I went to seminary. Shout out to McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University. And when I got into seminary, my my theology was challenged in so many ways. So I started to activate my critical thinking as it applies to my faith. And that flipped everything upside down because then I realized a lot of the stuff that I believed just didn't make sense. So. I started to explore how can I make sense out of my faith? Because my faith is real. Like my belief in God and God's ability and God's presence in my life never shifted. But uh, I needed to make some sense out of this. So I just in my studies, I, I don't remember how exactly I landed on the greatest commandment, but I just got to it. And I saw how much Jesus emphasized it. And I saw how many places in scripture it was reinforced. And I said, there's something to this. So I decided to just build my faith framework around the greatest commandment. And before I knew it, I was developing a theological system, like literally. So you had Myron on the show a while back. I was having a conversation with Myron talking about different aspects of the greatest commandment and how it functions and telling him the ideas that I had and the stuff that I was implementing. And, and Myron said, so you've basically just become a systematic theologian. You've created a system of theology. I was like, nah, bro, I ain't trying to do all that. 
I'm trying to be a good pastor. I'm trying to help people find a way to live out their faith responsibly. He said, well, I don't care what you were trying to do. You did it. So at that point, it was like, okay, I have this system of theology, but there's no literature anywhere to undergird it. Mm. So I have conversations with people all the time about greatest commandment theology. People are always inboxing me, DMing me, just about different components of my theology, but I never have anywhere to direct them because there are always a number of questions that come up because the concept is completely novel to people, which is why at the end of most of the chapters in my book, I end with a question. And generally the question I end with in the chapter is something that a person has actually asked me in the course of conversation. So that's how I got to writing the book. Yeah, that's super dope. And I think something that you said earlier that I was like, I wish more parents would do is to get their children to think critically because in the space of religion, I think that that's always the one place where we don't challenge anything. Right. Even if you are encouraged to think critically, it's like, oh, well, think critically in your math class or your science class. or <laughs> but, you, yeah. but religion, no, you do what we tell you to do. You're, you're going to believe what we tell you to believe. There is no questioning any of that. So I think that that's huge. So for people who are like me and we are in the process of deconstructing our faith, whether that be from white supremacy, whether that be from harmful and toxic theology, um, I really think this book is going to really help them. And um, there was a portion at the beginning of the book where you talked about embedded theology. And I and I'll be honest, like I felt like my whole like spirit just kind of leaped because <laughs> I was like, oh, I got language now to put to, you know, um, to put to kind of what I've been feeling like all of this has kind of just been given to me. I didn't even really choose this. So it, let's talk a little bit about embedded theology, because some people may not even realize that a lot of what they believe is not because of something that they pursued after. It was right. just handed to them. <laughs> right. And they've not done any investigation to see if it's if it's right or not. So um, I actually want to read this quote from the book and then we can talk about it. And you said, mm -hmm. my seminary journey revealed to me that my embedded theology contained a lot of bones. By embedded theology, I mean the perspective of God, my faith tradition instilled in me during my developmental years, which shaped my worldview. Let's kind of dive into that just a little bit, because for people who right now, um, like I say, are struggling or they're trying to deconstruct their faith, um, how do you get a person to understand that some of probably what they're believing is embedded if they've never even tried to do any investigation? So like, how, how does that all marry in a way? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to shout out two people in this. I want to shout out PJ Morton for writing the song Religion, because there's a lyric in his song Religion that I think speaks to embedded theology. So in, in the second verse of his song, he says, that's what you were told, let's just be honest. You didn't even take the time to find it for yourself. Um, you just took their words to be true. You don't even know why you believe what you do. <sighs> Such a powerful <laughs> statement. It is. Right? And then when you when you think about how embedded theology makes its way into the book, um, 
I want to also shout out Pastor Reginald Wayne Sharp Jr. of Fellowship Baptist Church in Chicago uh, because he wrote the foreword for the book. Now, Reggie and I uh, talked about the contents of the book, but he wrote his foreword without actually reading the manuscript. And he wrote in the foreword a lot of the stuff I was going to talk about in the book. So he talks about embedded theology in the foreword. And then in the first chapter, I talk about it as well. But we didn't have a conversation specifically about embedded theology, which is I, I don't I think it's providence. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that was intentional because embedded theology is the stuff that you're born into, that you're conditioned to believe before you really have the mental capacity to process it and critique it. So when I got to seminary, uh, I remember my old, not my Old Testament professor, my church history professor, Dr. Lloyd Allen, he would drop something nasty on us, just drop some type of insight. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't even be opinion. It'd just be a fact. Like this is something that actually happened in the history of the church. And he would say, now your mom and them never told you that, did they? And I'd be like, you right, bro. Mom and them didn't tell me that one. So I realized so much was embedded in me that I never questioned and I was operating in my faith journey off of these concepts I had never questioned. And when I got more insight and information, it put me in a position where, OK, I need to start critiquing some of the stuff that I've been believing all of this time, because we we come from faith traditions where generally our doctrine is presented to us as the only viable option. Like anything outside of this box yep. is almost demonic, right? Like, oh, they not really saved over there. They don't really love the Lord over there. And that's other Christians. Like, because yeah. different Christian organizations have different doctrines. Let's not even talk about other religions. Let's not talk about Islam and Buddhism and Let's not talk about African spirituality. Oh, that's just the devil. So there's so much embedded in us that we never thought to question. And we're walking around living in these echo chambers, thinking that everybody who's outside of our faith tradition is also outside of the will of God. Mm. Yeah, like it doesn't, I think literally reading about that and like just kind of in the first part of your book in your in your journey into kind of discovering and unpacking and deconstructing <laughs> in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. I just identify with it because I think for me it was embedded theology has caused me to defend things that I've never investigated. And oh, I've yes. caused like harm to other people unnecessarily because that's just what I was told, but it was never investigated like, well, why? You know, um, yeah. just because, like I say, you just didn't question. You just don't question it. Like that's this is what I was born into. We're you come from Christian families. I think you were. Are you like a fifth generation preacher? Fifth. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> like me, like all the women in my family, for the most part, are like evangelists or you know ministers. Um, and so you just kind of born into that. You just kind of don't question it. So I think that that's 
it was just spot on for me. So like I said, my spirit leaped when I read that. But yeah. here we are. <laughs> we hit on. So you go through seminary. You're taking these classes and you're like, wow, okay. So I had to kind of deconstruct some things. And then you hit on the greatest commandment, theology. Let's talk about that. So for somebody who has never heard of greatest commandment, theology, like what does that mean? Where does it come from? Um yeah, what is greatest commandment theology? Yeah, the greatest commandment theology is like a, a doctrine. It's a doctrinal framework, right? So uh, doctrine is a set of beliefs within a religious system. And many people, because of our embedded theology, we don't realize we operate in a doctrinal framework. We just think this is the word of the Lord to humanity, right? So what I believe is what God intended for all of humanity to believe since the beginning of time. And we operate in that vein, not realizing that e like if you narrow it all the way down to Christianity and your denomination and your church, a doctrine has been created by emphasizing certain scriptures mm -hmm. and then you either neglect or mm -hmm. reinterpret the scriptures that contradict those that you emphasized so people operate in these doctrines thinking that's just the word of the lord and they always support it with hey i'm just going with the word of god i believe the word <laughs> it's like you believe your doctrine, but you don't realize it's your doctrine. You've conflated your doctrine with the Bible as a whole. And really, your doctrine just cherry picks certain parts of the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that emphasizing certain scriptures is wrong. You have to do that if you're going to create a doctrine because the Bible is so vast. It's so it's so expansive. There are so many different components of the Bible. So when you consider how there are different contradictory portions of it, you have to emphasize certain stuff. People get really upset and say, you know, y'all just be out here picking and choosing. You have to. Like the Bible doesn't give you one seamless flow from beginning to end. So the question isn't, should we pick and choose? It's how should we pick and choose? So in my picking and choosing, I chose the greatest commandment. And I said to myself, because the Bible is so expansive, because there are so many contradictory parts of the Bible, I'm going to hang my hat on the greatest commandment. And for those who don't know what the greatest commandment is, let me say that. Uh, Jesus mentions it a number of times in the Gospels. Uh, my The one scripture that I lean on is found in Matthew 22, where Jesus says the greatest commandment is that you love God with your heart, your soul and your mind. A second part is like it, or you could say equal to it, is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says everything in the law and everything in the prophets hinge on these two. those two. So they're a package deal. You can't separate love for God 
and love for neighbor as self. You have to take them in combination because everything hinges on those two. So my interpretation of what Jesus says is that your love for God is expressed in how you love your neighbor. And the part that people generally miss is that your love for your neighbor is a reflection of the love you have for yourself. So love for self is at the core of the gospel. And that is one of the most challenging parts for people when it comes to greatest commandment theology, because love for self has been so stigmatized in our churches. We're like, that's bad. That's selfish. That's self-centered. But in reality, if you don't know how to love yourself, you can't love anybody else for real. And you can't love God because the essence of loving God is loving your neighbor as yourself. So that's what greatest commandment theology is. It's a doctrinal framework that focuses uh, and centers love for God, love for neighbor and love for self. And do you just to kind of tie things together? Do you feel like people don't have a love for themselves because of embedded theology? Because it teaches you not. I mean, because it it really puts you in a position where you are always taught to, um, I hate to say this, but in, in a lot of circles, it's true. It's almost as if you are a better Christian, the more you are a doormat. All right. So hold <laughs> up a second. I lost you there. So oh. I need you to go back and I need you to run that oh, back because sure. I missed all of it. <laughs> oh, let, well, let me break it down one more time. So yes, please. I was going to say that I feel like a lot of people don't love themselves because of embedded theology, because that's how it's presented. And oftentimes it, it it is presented that you are a better Christian the more you are a bigger doormat. Yes. Like, so we get things like turn the other cheek or, you know, or the biggest thing for me, like growing up was like when you need to serve, it's like Jesus thought it not robbery to come down. He became a servant, you know, so it's always and I'm not saying Jesus didn't. He did. But I'm just saying it's always that particular perspective. So in your estimation with people that you talk to about the greatest commandment theology or you've seen them like, oh, I love myself, but you can kind of see that they don't. Do you think that they struggle with that because of the upbringing of, you know, what they've been taught? of you can't really love yourself because that's that's anti-god almost <laughs> right All right so what what you just said highlights it perfectly you talked about people saying how jesus started not robbery to come down and be here with us that's a emphasis on a particular aspect of the story so one one of the things that i always tell people you can make whatever argument you want to make using the Bible. If you want to make an argument for complete selflessness, don't ever consider yourself, only consider others. You can make that argument using the Bible. The words of the Bible never change. How we read is what changes. So I chose not to emphasize the same things that many of my predecessors and many of my contemporaries emphasize. I decided that there's this component of the greatest commandment that I think people miss when Jesus states it. And let me also point out, this idea is not unique to Jesus. Jesus is only quoting his own scriptures. The greatest commandment is found in the Old Testament. So he's quoting the Old Testament. Um, 
so what 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 I'm saying is you can't uh, fully understand what it means to love other people if you don't love yourself. But Jesus makes an assumption when he says the greatest commandment. He's like, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's an assumption that you love yourself in the greatest commandment. And the reality is we can't make that assumption because most people in our culture don't even know what that looks like, have no idea what it looks like to love yourself. So some people will think that this whole concept of self-love is worldly, is secular, though. Don't be feeding in all these folk talking about love yourself. That's just a trick of the enemy. Well, then Jesus must be the enemy because Jesus said it. Right. So I think there's an assumption that Jesus makes that we should not make in our time frame. Most people that I've encountered have no idea what it means to love yourself. Oof. So in your estimation, what is a healthy version and what does a healthy person look like? Like that actually loves themselves. <laughs> because I feel like Christianity, unfortunately, I, and, and it's not, I'm not bashing like Christianity. I am like a Christian. I'm, I'm one. But right. I just feel like there have been so many different harmful things. And so we have, um, and we've talked about this at the faith community. We've created this system of dependency so people don't really know like how to navigate that. So if, if a person is hearing this right now and they're like, well, I think I love myself. I mean, I would like to think I do, but like, what do you, what, what is, what is a pictorial for you for a person that you could say, yet yeah, you love yourself. <laughs> like, like, so you could actually be, participate correctly in the greatest commandment theology because so you're not struggling. Right. And that's such a complex question um, that deserves an answer more detailed than what I can provide in this space. Uh, but in the book, I talk a little bit about what love looks like. So the first rule of love is to do no harm. Uh, many times we think about love means I'm helping everybody, uh, but we're finite beings. We don't have the capacity to help everybody. What we can work to do is not harm anybody. And that starts with ourselves. See, we, we think it starts with other people, but it really starts with ourselves. It's understanding what are our limitations? What are our boundaries? Sometimes how do we need to rethink those boundaries? So it starts with what am I doing that is potentially causing me harm? What am I allowing to be done to me that is potentially causing me harm? That's the first step of love. And I also point out in the book, we have to draw a clear line of demarcation between harm and discomfort. Because a lot of times we think because somebody makes us uncomfortable, that they're harming us. But in actuality, discomfort and harm are not the same thing. I'm talking about, when I talk about harm, I'm talking about somebody enacting something on you that causes you uh, pain in a way that you cannot live out your life the way you were meant to. So I'll use an example that I, I generally like to use. A lot of straight people 
consider it harm when LGBTQ plus people just live their lives. Like period. I'm like just live their lives as they are. And we come up with all types of arguments for why they shouldn't be able to do that. And we look at it as them harming us. Well, you always you don't have to shove it down our throats. Why I got to see gay people all on TV? Well, like you see straight people on TV all the time. That doesn't bother you. Right. So these are just people living their lives because, you know, gay people need representation on TV, too. The same way black people need representation, positive representation in front of us. So we we can't confuse harm and discomfort. Harm from the Q plus community would be the, uh, them trying to impose their sexual orientation onto us. So like if if Q plus people got together and said we got an agenda, everybody needs to be in a same gender loving relationship and we're not satisfied until everybody is in a same gender loving relationship well now you're causing me harm because that's not my orientation like i got a wife i like her a lot <laughs> and i said like intentionally because some people love their spouse but don't like them right. so that's that's a different topic for a different day. So if you're trying to impose same gender loving sexual orientation on me, then you are infringing on my right to live as I am created to live. But gay people don't do that. Straight people do that to gay people. So really, when we try to force them to live the way we think they should live and really deny their own humanity, we are now causing harm. So the first step of of love is do no harm. And it starts with yourself. And then because you've learned how to take care of yourself, you project that onto the people around you, which is the essence of the greatest commandment. So because you brought it up, I just feel like if people actually followed the greatest commandment theology, so it, it would be so much less traumatic for so many people who have been on the receiving end of harmful and toxic the harmful and toxic theology and people being bullies i was having a conversation um with my mom actually and we were talking about that like so she's one of those people she's like i feel like homosexuality is wrong but she still also is open to conversation she's like i don't know i have all the answers right, right. and i told her i said imagine how traumatizing it is that the same group of people who tell you um that you can't be yourself um, they tell you that who you are is an abomination are also the same group of people who get mad when you decide, like when you are trying to be closeted almost because you feel like you have to keep that to yourself. And then something happens. I'll use um, what's the guy's name? Andrew Gilliam. Is that his name? Yeah, yeah. In Florida. We were talking about him. And I was like, imagine how traumatic that is that Christians have have embedded it that. We don't want to hear about that. That's the gay agenda. Da, 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 da. And I say, but now people, the same group is mad with him because he had felt like he had to be quiet about that. And it's come out and it's like, why couldn't he just be himself? And it's like, imagine the duality in that and the, tra the trauma yeah. that that causes to people. And I was like, that's how bad theology is. And I've been trying to have those type of conversations with her. Um, 
of just how confusing and how traumatic it is um, and how damaging it is. And mm-hmm. I was like, we should be able to just love people. Like, I don't even understand why this is even up for debate. Like, yeah, I uh, why we have the conversation. A, a lot of people uh, are not themselves because it's not safe. Exactly. Going back to Andrew Gilliam, it wasn't, he didn't feel safe being himself. So he was a a shadow of himself in private because he didn't feel safe being himself in public. And that is actually what creates a lot of these harmful activities that people get into because they can't truly be themselves in the public because their community will chastise them. And usually your faith community has also used heaven and hell as the carrot in the stick. And we tell you, this is the stuff you can be. This is the stuff you cannot be. So when you tell somebody like, let's let's stick with the, the Q plus community. When you tell them they are not allowed to be themselves because your sexuality is your basic humanity. Like that's not something that you decide. That was the, one of the biggest parts of me getting to this point, realizing sexuality is not something you choose. It's something you discover. So you discover how you are oriented sexually. Your faith community, which tells you what gets you into heaven and keeps you out of hell, tells you that your sexuality is an abomination and you desperately want to change it because you don't want to go to hell. Right. So you do everything you can. Lord, take this from me. People in prayer meetings and tarrying services like, Lord, please take it out of me. But guess what? God doesn't take it out of you because that's who you are. That's how God created you. So these people are telling you, you can't do this. You can't be this. But it's who you are. So you find ways behind closed doors to live out who you are. But you do it in such a harmful way. So I don't know what led to Andrew Gilliam being in a hotel room and, you know, all the drugs and everything. I would imagine, though, if he didn't have to live with the trauma of being ostracized for his basic humanity, maybe he doesn't use drugs to cope. I don't know. I'm just saying that's a reality. Absolutely. Um, I just (laughs) I think for me and I think for people and I will say this, if you're listening, watching um, it's not just we are using that as, as an example, but it's not just the Q plus community. Many of you all can probably identify in church spaces, not being able to be your whole self um, yeah. because you needed to fit into what they are dictating that you need to look like. And it's like God knew exactly how he made you. He know exactly what he gave you. Gifts, talent, everything. So to me, there's nothing. Nothing surprises God. Like, like it's yeah. just. But for, I think in church spaces and in Christianity, we like to have a monopoly on what things need to look like. We like, we want to say, this is what marriage looks like. We want to say like, this is what a good believer looks like. We want to say, this is what a good wife is supposed to be. And she's supposed to do these certain things. This is what a good husband's supposed to be. This is what these certain things. And so we, we have this obsession with controlling and manipulating truth. And monopolize yeah. and trying to monopolize it. Like, and if anybody dare, dare question, you are called what Christian is has lovingly accepted. You're called a heretic, you're called yeah. every name in the book. And it's True. like, 
I think oh, the I've greatest been... commandment theology frees people. <laughs> oh yeah, I've been called the antichrist, uh, an enemy of God. I've oh. been I've been called some of everything. Uh, you know, just let's just look at one of the statements you just made. This is what a marriage is supposed to look like. I always want to ask people based on what, right? Your idea of a marriage is based on what? You know what they always say? The word. Have you actually read anything in the Bible about marriage? Like anything? Like smashing everything. (laughs) And and monogamy is not a focus in scripture at all like we always lean on the creation story which is allegory right it it didn't historically happen that way but we take these two fictitious characters to represent the beginning of humanity and say this is what god meant for marriage but that stuff was being written by people in polygamous relationships so where are you getting this idea of what marriage is supposed to look like based on scripture abraham um i don't i don't think let me i know abraham jacob david solomon like the list goes on and on and on of male figures in scripture who had multiple spouses. But then we say, oh no, marriage is supposed to be one man and one woman based on what? Because I got more evidence in the Bible that marriage should probably be between multiple people. If we're going to just use the word, I got more evidence that marriage should be between multiple people. I'm going to say this and I'll move on because I could keep talking about this part forever, but I will say this. Um, So I think when, you know, uh, they were fighting to get um, um, our Q plus siblings, um, you know, their natural rights to marry. Right. So that was a Mm -hmm. whole big thing in the country. Right. And the biggest argument that a lot of people had was, oh, well, you know, that's not godly marriage. That's not, that's not. And I was like, so here's the thing. Don't talk to me about godly marriage because half of y'all ain't godly in your marriage. If you care so much about godly marriage and you, I was like, first of all, it's a word. I was like, how about you just honor what you feel God wants you to do in your marriage? That's number one. But number two, if half of y'all actually really cared so much about godly marriage but you sitting up here cheating on your wife you got babies on the side like it's come on <laughs> like, yeah. like you say people it's like so which one is it it's like you can do whatever you want to do just don't be gay like that's <laughs> do whatever just don't do that and you know the reason that that people respond that way is because we're not really concerned about the stuff you do that we don't know about, we're just concerned about the stuff that we see. So yeah, your pastor can have a bunch of girlfriends or like some somebody in your family can have a bunch of side chicks or side dudes, women do it too. Uh, but as long as we don't know about it, then we're not concerned. Then when we find out it's like, oh, well, that's wrong. But, you know, God forgives you. But then when it comes to gay people wanting to get married, like we've we've we put 
our foot down right there. Like, you know, no, you can't do that. The same way people treat women who uh, are called to serve in leadership, who are called to pastor and called to preach. Like, you know, you can have those thoughts within yourself, but don't try to do it publicly. Like right. a, a great a great example of that is um, a church conference I went to a few years back where, you know, it's a um, Pentecostal movement. So no drinking whatsoever. Like you're not allowed to drink alcohol in this movement. But the reality is everybody's drinking alcohol privately in their room. I know this because I talked to one of the hotel employees when I was at the bar. I'm at the bar getting drinks. And the hotel employee is like, I hate when this conference comes every year because everybody comes to the bar and all they want is food. Nobody gets drinks. I was like, wow, for real? She said, yeah, but I mean, they just don't drink out here in public. They have bottles galore in their room because housekeeping always tells me how many bottles they clear out of these rooms after out of these rooms after everybody checks out. So what we're really saying is a good Christian is somebody that doesn't drink in public, not somebody that doesn't drink. A good Christian is somebody who does all their dirt behind the scenes as long as they don't get caught by the community, because really it's the community that serves as our authority, not God, the community. So the community becomes our God. As long as the community doesn't know what I'm doing, I'm straight. Once they find out, I'm screwed. Uh-huh. And like don't even don't do anything that would disrupt what we get from you as a community. Oh, we yeah. see that a lot with our with our Q plus siblings a lot. They serve in ministry and direct choirs, direct, I mean doing uh, writing music, all of this stuff. And the moment <laughs> that mm -hmm. they decide to really just walk in their truth. Oh my goodness, you think I'll help, but it's like, but you've been using them this whole time. You knew the whole time, first of all. But mm -hmm. you've been using them this whole time. And I think so many people can identify with that particular, you know, fraction of being involved in a church space because a lot of times this is why you loving you is important. And what mm -hmm. Christian talks about earlier, because that's harmful to you. If you are consistently giving, 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 and can never be yourself in an environment that you're consistently always giving, you know, your whole self to, that doesn't even make sense. Right. Like, there's I mean, there's no that? reciprocity. No. Yeah. There's no reciprocity there. And that's that's an unhealthy relationship. Any relationship that does not contain reciprocity is toxic and it needs to be abandoned. Yeah. So, so people get caught up in these relationships and they just need oh, to get out. Oh, my God. Please get out. Love yourself. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So we discovered love for ourselves. But the next part to greatest commandment theology is love for neighbor mm -hmm. um and in the book you kind of break down how you define your neighbor so can you walk us through that and what that looks like yeah so i i have this this message that i've preached quite a few times called uh, who is my neighbor and it's based on the samaritan story in the book of luke and a lot of people call it the Good Samaritan. I talk in the I talk about in the book why I hate that title. You just have to read the book to, to learn why I hate the title, the Good Samaritan. But the the basic gist of the story, this is the the Luke account that 
presents the greatest commandment because an attorney comes to Jesus and says, all right, how do I gain eternal life? Because that is the human question. Like that's the question of humanity. When this life ends, what happens? Because we cannot comprehend that. So this attorney comes to Jesus and says, well, how do I gain eternal life? And Jesus says, you already know. You tell me. The attorney says, right. OK, so love God, love my neighbor as myself. Jesus says, bingo. Here's the attorney's follow up question. Well, who is my neighbor? Because what he really wants to do is figure out who am I allowed to hate? Who am I allowed to marginalize? Who am I allowed to oppress? Because surely you don't want me to just love everybody the way I love myself. You don't you 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 talking about like the people who think like me, who act like me, who believe like me. So Jesus tells this story about the Good Samaritan and basically points out to the attorney at the end of the story, your neighbor. Or not, whether you think like them or not, whether you believe like them, whether you love like them whether you identify or express like them, that is your neighbor. I want you to love them the way you love yourself. So when we talk about who is my neighbor, everybody. And that, that's going to be hard for a lot of people who are in the part of traditional, of, you know, traditional Christian spaces, because, and I was having this conversation with a friend and I was like, you know what? I realized a lot of things that are taught are coded for you hating somebody though Absolutely. it's not presented that way i said I, I hate the phrase you know you know hate the sin love the sinner like i was mm -hmm. like so those type of language <laughs> that type of language it really does teach you that so then you encounter greatest commandment theology it's like no you are required to love people we love right. having um we love having somebody to hate because oh. i feel like it makes us feel more holy it makes mm -hmm. us feel more righteous um, and we could say, at least I'm not bad. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. so yeah, I think that it, that's it's rooted. It's rooted in our doctrine, right? We're, we're yeah. supposed to be set apart, but we don't really understand the way in which we're supposed to be set apart. The way, the way followers of Jesus are supposed to be set apart is in how we love people, uh -huh. how we embrace, how we affirm, how we advocate. That's how we're supposed to be set apart. Okay. So we take it in a lot of our churches and we say we're supposed to be set apart. We completely abandon all the stuff Jesus talked about. Love, embrace, advocacy, all of that stuff. Sacrifice. We, we, we abandon all of that. And we say we're set apart because we don't drink and we don't smoke and we don't cuss and we go to church every Sunday and we speak in tongues and we shout and we dance and we read our Bible and we pray. And like that is that stuff is supplemental to the I'm not saying that praying isn't important, but I'm saying if you get on your knees and pray and then you get up and you demean or diminish somebody else, you can keep that funky ass prayer you just prayed because it means nothing. Mm -hmm. So I, I just feel like we need to be very specific in what we're talking about when we say we want to be set apart in what way. And if you diminish, if you diminish that to just not smoking, drinking, cussing, going to the club and being gay, 
you've missed the point of the gospel. Absolutely. And I feel like that's where a lot of people are, myself included, mm -hmm. where maybe your faith has been completely entangled in white supremacy. Um, and you're seeing it now because to me in the really before Trump, but I think he just has exposed it. Um, in the in the year of Trump, we will know you are Christians by the way you hate and spew like just venomous things. That's how we know you're a Christian. Like, yeah. like that's literally like it used to be like you're saying, we would know you will know that somebody's a Christian by the way they love. But I mm -hmm. feel like that has been hijacked by white supremacy. Right. Um, and now it's you'll know you're a Christian by the way you hate. And Please. I think I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, you know, go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. So I, I think what's important here, because a lot of people will question, you know, well, what does it mean to love again? Right. Because for some people, they define love as me doing everything in my power to keep you from going to hell. And I am taught certain things and, and certain activities and ways of being that will send you to hell. And oftentimes those ways of being that I am taught send you to hell are inextricably linked to the person's humanity. Like you cannot separate a, a woman from her womanhood, right? So you have a, a woman who feels called to lead and preach and we tell them that's a sin and you shouldn't be doing that. But I can, I can speak as a preacher. Preaching is not something you choose. Like when you, when you really serious about it, it's something that chooses you. I tried to avoid preaching. I did not want to be a preacher, but it, it just over, it overcame me. And I don't think that experience is unique to men. Women have the same experience, but we tell them, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. That's outside of God's will. And we're telling them we love them because we're trying to keep them in God's will, which is a will that we have created. Uh -huh. Someone once said that God created humanity in God's image and then humanity returned the favor and created God in humanity's image. Absolutely. So when we say um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on heaven as it is in earth, many times we use what we believe here in earth and cast it into heaven. So because this is how I feel, this must be how God feels. So because this is how I feel, I am going to tell everybody you can or cannot do this because I love you and I don't want you to go to hell. And we make people's lives a living hell in the name of getting them to heaven. And the reality is, if you're going to make my life a living hell, you can keep your heaven. Uh -huh. So we really need to have a conversation about what does love look like in action? If you're going to make somebody's life a living hell, saying you love them to get them to heaven, you, you can't be overly concerned with the afterlife while you're you're pissing away this life. You just can't do that. Absolutely. Um, and you hit on something I think um, we covered in a past episode. Um with Myron and we were talking about white supremacy in the black church. And that was one of the ways that 
um, he and I had talked about was that whiteness defines itself. And of course, whiteness, you don't have to be white to perpetuate white supremacy or whiteness. Oh, yeah. FYI. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's one of the ways it reveals itself is it thinks that it is superior. So it makes God in God, it makes God in their image. So I have to make God look like me. Mm. Um, and then now I become the authority on everything, right? And so I was, go ahead. Yeah, and, and part of loving yourself as a black person is rejecting white theology because, because white supremacist theology was created to make a black person feel like they are less than God created them to be. So we have to truly embrace who God has created us to be. And that means rejecting a lot of the things that uh, many white theologians over the years have told us, I'm not casting this negative light on all white theologians. Um, I, I know many who are great people and recognize the damage of white supremacy and speak against it. So this is not some broad brush on all white people. I got plenty of white friends and I love them and they are they are near and dear to my heart. But the concept of this white supremacist theology for black people to love ourselves, we have to reject that outright. I mean, throw it up, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, get rid of it. And I think, again, that's where a lot of people are um, in deconstructing their faith away from white supremacy to see what's still standing, because a lot of that has immersed itself in black church spaces. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I, I hope that we can get to that point. That's a whole that's a whole nother topic. But anyway, right. so <laughs> breaking all the rules, where can people purchase this book? Because I feel like we've given them a lot. Y'all got to go read the book. Like yeah. we didn't want to <laughs> give you too much, but we did want to talk about some things um, that we know you needed to hear. But if for an in-depth dive, like you, you really need to go read the book. So how can people purchase the book? Where is it available? All of that. Yeah. So right now we're still in pre-orders until it's available on Amazon. You can order the book at my website. It's christianasmith.com. For those who are listening, my name is spelled K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, christianasmith.com. Uh, you can pre-order the book there. Uh, we're shipping them out as the orders come in and every pre-order will be uh, signed to the uh, purchaser. So uh, go to christianasmith.com and pick it up because it will really give you uh, a basic foundation of this entire conversation that we're having. A lot of the stuff we've talked about, it's in the book and it allows you to sit with it and wrestle with it and ask questions. And if you get the book, please do get the book. If you have questions about it, like hit me up, like, Find me on social media. Say, hey, you wrote this in your book. And I'm wondering how does this function? I already got some feedback from somebody who read my book and it was great feedback. So I'm here for the questions. I'm here for the critique. Um, I'm here for the discussion because I believe that's how we grow in our faith through dialogue rather than declaration. And I will say this, this is going to be a shameless plug. If you're in Atlanta or really actually doesn't matter where you are. Um, can you just talk about how the faith community and what a disruptive ministry it is? And like, if people want to like, see what the greatest commandment theology, it looks like in action, like how sure. people get connected to that. Yeah. So the faith community ATL, if you, uh, search at TFC ATL, you should be able to find us on Instagram, Facebook and, um, and YouTube. Uh, so 
our church is very particular in who God has called us to. We're called to minister to the unchurched, the underchurched, and the overchurched. So the unchurched are, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory. People who just haven't been churched, they haven't been indoctrinated with anything, but they're still curious about finding a community of faith because they have a connection to the divine. Then you have the underchurched, who are people who are currently in churches, but feel out of place because maybe you've evolved beyond the theology of your church. You have questions that you can't get answered or you have questions you don't even want to ask because you're concerned about being ostracized for asking the wrong questions. The faith community is for you. And then the overchurched is people who are just over it. Like I'm sick of church. I love God. But I'm sick of church. I'm tired of the hypocrisy. Yeah, like a lot, <laughs> a lot of the people in our church have come to the faith community as like this last ditch effort to give church a shot. So we are rooted in greatest commandment theology, anti-racism, LGBTQ plus affirmation, women's equity and Bible criticism. And Bible criticism basically means that we take the Bible seriously enough to approach it critically. And I, I'm just a firm believer that you cannot take the Bible seriously if you are only willing to read it literally. Mm-hmm. I take it too serious to always read it literally. Oh, so y'all check out the faith community. Um, y'all please go get Go get breaking all the rules. Please, please. Right now, go to ChristianASmith.com, get the book. Um, and he will autograph it. Mine is autographed. I ain't going to tell you what it says because it's for me and me only. <laughs> but he will write you a note and he will autograph it. So, Christian, oh, before we go, how can people follow you on social media if they want to connect with you there? Yeah, so I want to I want to answer that, but I also want to say at the faith community beginning in October, we're going to do a series on breaking all the rules. So if you get the book and you read it, and you're like, man, I need to be a part of a discussion group about this book, you can actually participate in one with the faith community. We meet virtually, so wherever you are, you can participate in this study. Uh, just uh, you can connect with me on social media. Just look up Christian A. Smith on. Uh, Facebook and it's Christian Smith 02 on Instagram and Twitter and in the faith community again look up TFC ATL so you can connect with us you can be a part of the breaking all the rules series that we're going to do we're going to take it one chapter at a time week by week because I wrote this book in order to spark conversation so when you read it you're probably going to want to talk about it. And we're going to provide a space for you to do that beginning in October. Absolutely. I love it. So y'all, it's an easy read. Um, you probably can knock this out in a day, but you're probably gonna yeah. reread it because there's things that are in there. You're gonna be like, I need to kind of go back and read that and sit with that for a second and process. Um, so yeah, so Christian, thank you for being on the podcast yet again. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was always, it's always fun. Yeah, so for y'all who are watching, stay tuned. More episodes are coming. I appreciate y'all. And until next time, see y'all on the next episode. Peace. Peace.